Yes. It's a bit weird at my time of life, as I slither towards retirement, to be pushed back to revisit the research I did as a postgraduate at the University of Liverpool longer ago than I care to remember. So um, this is, if you like, me digging back into my own past as well as digging back into the past. Now, I suppose by way of introduction, you know, I did, I'd thought about setting the scene a little bit. Uh, there's been a 30-year drift away from what used to be called standard employment. We can start it, if you like, with the 1980s and Thatcher's de labour market deregulation measures, moving on through new labour and a Tony Blair extolling the flexible labour market and the advantages of labour market flexibility to building a more competitive economy. And since the global financial crisis, certainly we've seen uh, the use of zero-hour contracts and self-employment, which I take as a euphemism for casual labor as often as not, um, rise and rise. In fact, the number of jobs that are now described as self-employed that have been created since 19 2009, I have to watch my centuries here, <laughs> are um, somewhere in the region of 80 percent of all new jobs are self-employment, and an awful lot of the others are part-time or temporary. So we are seeing a big drift away from permanent full-time work. And we can include in that the, the gig economy, you know, the Uber and the Deliveroo's, where work is task-based, and you're paid on a task-based basis and, through, uh, and managed through an IT platform. This means, necessarily, that um, there are a growing proportion of those in work are relying on state-based benefits, tax credits once upon a time Gordon Brown introduced to subsidise families who are in part-time work, shifting now towards universal credit, which means they're going to like there's not going to get much less. So the, the if you like, the tragedy if, is getting worse. Social dependency is rising. Uh, Jill Rubery wrote a very interesting article last year where she depicts a situation, a battle between, currently, it's a battle between employers and government. Government trying to contain social expenditure, employers, a large number of them, trying to avoid being called employers at all. Um, the government problem is, of course, with rising social dependency and falling incomes, you've got falling tax revenues as well. And workers in the... Um, non-standard employment bracket lose social protection. They lose pension savings. They right to pension, save for a pension if they're not paying NICs. They lose uh, maternity leave. They lose holiday pay and sick pay. So we are building up, as this situation gets worse, and the government knows it, a future of claimants, more claimants, particularly among older workers, particularly among those who are supposed to work until the end of time but won't be able to. The solution so far, and I am a policy person underneath it all, the public expenditure create, um, uh, constraints are busily recalibrating what were the striver elements of this irregular workforce into being skiver elements. If you are working part-time hours you, and you claim any form of subsidy, you are called forward to see if you can extend your hours in order to earn more. The other main strategy has been to raise the minimum wage, the living wage, whatever its current label is, I'm afraid I forget, so that hopefully your income will rise above the state-sponsored minimum. And now, um, this is where I should enter, Mrs May has commissioned Matthew Taylor to head up a review 
of what is called work in the modern economy. And my entry point is how modern is this form of employment. I think it's a mistake to understand it as modern. I say it is very old indeed. Um, I think if we look back at the 20th century, I would suggest that the standard full-time permanent employment contract, which is considered traditional or normal or whatever, is actually a political construct that's fully realized in the 1940s and has been corroded since the 1980s, arguably before, but I'm not going to. So we can actually see the early part of the 20th century as a momentum building towards the establishment of a socio-political negotiated contract, and it happens in Europe as well, and its subsequent collapse. Now the first, why were early informers concerned? I now get onto the historical part, having wasted how much, about five minutes? Hardly anything. Hardly, Hardly anything, thank you the late 19th century debate. And here we find the arguments that have been put forward in praise of flexible work, that it's economically efficient, that it encourages entrepreneurship and self-motivation, that it minimizes social dependency, are all turned on their heads. Social dependency rises as a result of what is then termed casual labor. Social dependency in the early, late 19th century means dependency on the poor law not on the national exchequer, but on the local rate player. It also creates problem households, as they will be called today, namely social degeneration and demoralization. It's a wonderful 19th century word, demoralization. It essentially means loss of moral character, loss of independence, loss of self-worth. And it's also seen as a threat in its early stages to political stability. Now, by the late 19th century, most of the investigations into this problem area are the result of uh, the founders, uh, led by the founders of British social statistics, their social inquirers, some of whose names may or may not be familiar to you. They are um, largely connected with commerce, funnily enough. They're not Rathbone. Uh, Eleanor is the daughter of William Rathbone, who is the a merchant in Liverpool. Charles Booth, who's the biggest name probably, is connected to the White Star Line, the same family, Liverpool again. Uh, Roundtree's name should need no further elaboration. Wine gums. Um, anyway, casualism and poverty and social degeneration or demoralization led to social investigation. And the conundrum was in the late 19th century that wage rates were actually going up. But poverty was not going down, and social dependency certainly wasn't going down. Booth's inquiry in, the 19, in, in London, in the East End, distinguished five classes in the East End. Class E, we don't have to worry about too much. It's, in, it's not in poverty. Class D is in poverty, but the cause of poverty here is low pay. Class C is in poverty, but due to irregular employment. Class B are the habitual casuals, and Class A are criminals. Well, it's Class B and C that interest us most at the moment. Pauperism, he argues, is less a problem of low pay than excess competition in casual trades. And I've got some slides that I just want, I'm going to flash up while I talk. You can read them or not as you see fit. 
but rather than read them out, which I thought would which illustrate these various perspectives. Uh, this is an early slide, and it's just, I like it simply because of the association between social hygiene and physical hygiene, that in our cities we have a, a mess that is contaminatory, disease-ridden, and is going to erupt in into political revolt unless we're very careful. Now, I'm reminded forcibly, I don't know how many people in this room know Guy Standing's work, The Precariat, which is, he argues the same thing, that these are dangerous classes. Now, Gareth Stepman Jones, were he here, would argue against that. I don't want to get into that debate, but nonetheless, we've heard similar arguments made more recently. This is Charles Booth himself, and here he is arguing quite clearly the inefficiency of mass casualism. Class C would work regularly if only it had the chance. It could do all Class B's work. But because Class B is competing, the incidence of social dependency, as we'd now, or pauperism, as it was called then, spreads over a larger mass of people. Moreover, yeah, this is Booth still. He class, the casual labor class, is very expensive. It's expensive because wages are pushed up to attract the best labor. With wages being pushed up, you find rural labor coming in from outside to compete for this work. And this makes a bad situation worse still. Trade unions. Booth argues are to blame for this. Well, I don't think that's fair, actually, but never mind. Trade, trade unions, are, because they push for higher wages. It, it is not, this is quite converse, of course, to the current attitude today and the current practice today. This is not a problem of wages being too low, Booth argues. It's work being spread too thinly among too many people. A slightly more sympathetic view from the webs, I suppose, of what you might expect. Um, these are the early Fabians who conclude that actually the physical and psychological damage done by a casual system creates a class that cannot work regularly even if given the chance. They are dispirited, they are underfed, they are discouraged, <laughs> and they learn to live hand to mouth. And this is reinforced by Eleanor Rathbone's view of casual labor in Liverpool. These are dockers that she's talking about. They have adapted the habits of their lives only too well to the conditions of their work. This is what they were encouraged to do, of course. For the ship owners, you want to actually work a ship round the clock in order to catch the tide and minimize your port dues. Therefore, you have gangs who are put on to work the ship round the clock. And if you are involved in that type of ship work, it's physically exhausting. You can't then solemnly go to work for the rest of the week. And then I enter stage left William Beveridge, the young William Beveridge, whose name may be familiar, yes, hopefully. Uh, he is um, extremely concerned about wasted manpower and wasted manpower resources, and he latches on to the casual labor market as a major source of wasted manpower. Uh, the 
here, I mean, this again, it contrasts very strongly, I think, with the sort of message we hear today, that work discipline is encouraged by those who are forced to look for work continuously and continuously reinvent themselves as being capable of um, finding work. Here, managerial discipline is lacking among the casual trades that actually they are feckless, they are irresponsible, they are insubordinate, you can't get a handle on them, you can't force them to train, you can't force them to do anything. And so casual labour is a source of employer indiscipline. And the argument he makes is that actually we've got to restore men, to, working men, to independence. I want to stress that in this era, we're talking about households, we're talking about household dependency, and the focus is totally on male workers, male workers as heads of household. Okay? This is, if you like, the liberal ideal. The male head of household will earn enough to free himself and his family and his dependents from any dependence on the state. In order to enable him to do this, he must be able to have enough work to sustain that household, and this means a regularization of his income. So we get on to the actual policies, and the policy here, the cure-all, if you like, is the labor exchange. Now, labor exchanges subsequently became called employment exchanges and then became rechristened job centers. Beveridge himself went to, went to Germany, he visited Strasbourg in particular, where their urban exchanges worked very closely with employers and trade unions to create mobile labor markets and to guarantee employment. For Beveridge, though, he wanted to go one further. He wanted a national system of labor market rationalization. And the idea was that the... Um, the exchange official would be the means to actually enforce more dis working discipline on people who came forward in search for work. So employment reform lies at the heart of the political message as it develops before the First World War. And uh, that's all my quotes, so we can relax. I will take the microphone back again. It was just really to give you a flavour of the nature of the debate and the types of argument that were being put forward at that time. The idea here, we have in the labour exchange, backed by early national insurance, the wherewithal to categorise the national labour market. The officials will be able to determine the, and separate the efficient worker from the lazy worker, the ill or incapacitated worker or the elderly worker. It will, and it will facilitate the dovetailing of intermittent jobs and it will define pref, uh, professional identities. And this process of national classification, I put to you, has been with us ever since. We distinguish the employed, the unemployed, the sick, the retired, and so on, and the um, disabled. And uh, I want to come back to that in a minute, if I've got a minute. The results are not successful, and I'm going to come back to that in a minute. But there are some quite interesting points of contrast that I'd like to mention. 
and one is obviously gender, which I'm sure is going to be picked up later. But of course, the focus here is on households, because males are deemed to be responsible for the well-being of the household. The male casual worker is the object of attention. Female casual labour, where it exists, is seen as a symptom of poverty, not a cause of poverty within this argumentation. The second point I want to emphasise is that the cure for poverty is regular work, not higher wages. And I think it's a complete opposite to what we're witnessing now. Uh, regular work will reduce poverty, will reduce social dependency, it will increase work discipline, it will increase the employer's authority over his labour force, and therefore, it will improve economic efficiency. And in this particular era, that means being able to stave off German and American competition and safeguard the empire. I mean, there's a big sort of international competitive element to all of this. I also would like to emphasize that this is a liberal government acting on liberal principles. This is not a sudden flash of socialism. In fact, the Labour Party was very ambivalent about all these measures. And the trade union movement, to a large extent, was hostile. In the 2000s, we have seen, on the contrary, flexibility and the gig economy being extolled. Self-employment is seen as autonomy. Self-employment is wealth, work discipline. And we've also seen the collapse of these, the slow corrosion, and I think they're in the state of collapse now, of the established classifications that were made, put in place before the First World War. Uh, retirement, I mean, I, my generation is probably, an, dare I say it, John's generation, is probably among the last to be able to retire as such. The, those in their 30s and 40s feel they're going to have to work till they drop. Um, I'm not going to comment at this stage. I'm sure we could discuss it later. But re the re notion of retirement on a pension is, I mean, it, of course, these weren't retirement pensions at this point. That came in much later. But it, nonetheless, the notion of retirement is going. The treatment of the t disabled. We know that pushing more and more disabled people back into work is widening the gap between their income and those of other workers. Why? Because more and more considered not to be disabled. In order to be labelled disabled, you have to, I think, to be more or less bedridden, but we won't go into that at the moment either. And also, finally, who are the unemployed in this day and age? The Labour Force Survey say if anyone who gets one hour of waged work per week is in employment. So the meaning of unemployment has just vanished. Why is British unemployment so low? Well, there's your answer. Finally, why did decasualisation fail? Well, all what I've been talking about is very much the social scientists looking at the problem and making decisions. There was no negotiation either with employers or the union movement. And as a result, when the new legislation was put in place, well, most employers didn't bother with it. They just ignored it. And their attitude was pretty intransigent, generally speaking. The trade union movement, as I already mentioned, is ambivalent. I'm, I revert to the docks now, because um, that's the bit I know best. Jimmy Sexton, who was in charge of the Liverpool National Union of Dock Labour's made a pact with a local labour exchange scheme imposed on the port of Liverpool to try and get, establish a closed shop that, so that only 
his union members could be registered as dockers. And the result was he was chased out of his own offices by his own men. None of that was, that was put in place, but the registers, the tallies that were used were sold or loaned or multiplied, and employers gave them up like smarties anyway, so it didn't have any very much impact. Um, Tillett, on the other hand, proclaimed that those who um, were in favour of getting rid of surplus labour couldn't, didn't know what to do with it, and they thought it should, they should be poisoned or shot in one of his more famous speeches. <laughs> Um, until it was much more interested in establishing a regional union called the Southside Labour Protection League. It was a federal union, a federation of local unions that would allow workers to work on the docks, off the docks, where everyone recognised everyone's trade union badge. Quite contrary to what happened as a result of the First World War, which is established of a national dock union. But the World, World War I should be credited, I think, with that particular development, and Ernie Bevin, of course. And there's an enormous hostility at grassroots level, and I think this is something that's going to come up again, should anyone try and meddle with the situation as it stands now. Marginal workers resented the possibility they were going to lose all hope of work altogether. The more marginal you were, the more frightened you were of this sort of tendency. The more skilled, on the other hand, the more you favoured your autonomy. You enjoyed the ability, when times were good, she adds hastily, to choose the job and, and your employer and to work for who you chose, when you chose to do it. So both sides were against this imposition of new managerial discipline. And I mean, on the docks, at least, we have two legislative interventions, one in the 1940s, one in the 1970s, both trying to decasualize. In both cases, the legislation is met, met with strikes and disruption and hostility. And the situation's only finally settled when Mrs. Thatcher abandons the dock labor scheme altogether in the name of labor market deregulation. And so uh, is this a message for the tailor review, I ask myself. And I'm going to stop now. <laughs>